I'm Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome! Welcome! Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we made it to the Disney Renaissance. We made it! Whoa! <laughs> Gosh! <laughs> Took us a year and a half, we did it. We did it, we're talking about The Little Mermaid, and I am so excited. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Shall I start us off with a brief synopsis? Yes, please. The plot centers on Ariel, a 16-year-old mermaid fascinated with the human world. Her father, King Triton, is, however, concerned about her safety, and so he forbids her to go to the ocean surface, and he assigns Sebastian, the royal musician, to supervise Ariel. Ariel disregards her father's orders and ventures to the surface once again, where she lays eyes upon human prince Eric, who is aboard a large ship. The ship encounters stormy seas and becomes wrecked on some rocks, and so Ariel has to save Eric from drowning. When she pulls him onto shore and sings to him, Eric falls in love with her. However, King Triton then discovers that Ariel has been to the surface yet again, and even worse, she's fallen in love with a human, so he destroys Ariel's collection of human objects. It's this is really scary, that scene, too. <laughs> it seems very scary, and it's like, oh, Triton has some anger issues he needs to yeah, work on. Uh, someone's got to go to therapy. Yeah. Uh, so Ariel is understandably devastated. So she turns to Ursula, the sea witch, for assistance. And in fact, she's actually lured to Ursula by Ursula's minions, Flotsam and Jetsam. Flotsam and Jetsam. Jet. <laughs> Flotsam and... How do you say those words? Flotsam? Flotsam and Jetsam. Jetsam. Okay. Not like the Jetsons. It's different. <laughs> So she's lured by Flotsam and Jetsam, the eels, to Ursula's lair. Ursula was banished by King Triton, and she's eager to use Ariel as a pawn for her revenge. So she offers to turn Ariel into a human in exchange for Ariel's voice, which is very beautiful. However, Ariel must receive a kiss from Prince Eric within three days, or she will belong to Ursula. So Ursula is assuming that Ariel will fail. So she is hoping that that means she'll then be able to use Ariel as leverage against King Triton. Ariel is transformed and Eric discovers her on the beach and the two begin spending time together. However, because Ariel no longer has her voice, Eric doesn't recognize her as the person who saved him from the shipwreck. So he's like kind of into Ariel, but he's also like, mm, there's this like mystery magical woman out there who saved me with the beautiful voice. So I'm kind of into her, not realizing that Ariel is in fact that person. So Ariel and Eric come very close to kissing. And so Ursula becomes afraid that her plan will fail. So she turns herself into a human with Ariel's voice and is able to bewitch Eric and convince Eric to marry her instead. Ariel and her sidekicks discover Ursula's plot and attempt to stall the wedding between Eric and Ursula in human form. However, they're too late, and Ariel is transformed back into a mermaid and will now belong to Ursula. 
To prevent this, King Triton takes Ariel's place and Ursula becomes ruler of the ocean. In this climactic scene, Eric uses a broken mast of a ship to impale Ursula, killing her and restoring King Triton to his throne. King Triton then recognizes that Ariel's happiness really depends on her ability to be with her one true love, Prince Eric, so King Triton turns Ariel into a human. They get married. The end. Yay. Happily ever after. Happily ever after. (laughs) Nice. That was great. Thank you. You're welcome. Tell me about your experiences with Little Mermaid up to now. This was not a favorite, like a an often watched one as a kid. It was no Oliver and Company. Honestly, no. It was no <laughs> Oliver and Company. <laughs> but it was it was no Lion King. It was no Aladdin. Mm. Honestly, if you're gonna split them down the middle back to like gendered terms, it was probably more into the quote unquote boyish films mm, versus yeah. the girl or princess year ones. Well, you were into the ones with male protagonists. Maybe the ones with more fighting. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely seen this many times, but I didn't know all of the details as well. A couple of the scenes felt like it had been a long time since I'd seen them, especially mm. a lot of the like ones where Ariel is on land as a human, like the carriage ride and stuff that mm. just doesn't really stick in your brain. I was like, oh, yeah, this is part of this movie, isn't it? I had totally forgotten the entire opening scene and brief song number with Eric and all the sailors on the ship. I was like, whoa, Mm -hmm. they're singing already? Right. Yeah. There's a lot of good little interludes, Mm -hmm. but this movie has so many spectacular moments that like you can't remember them all. Yeah. (laughs) The major thing that (laughs) somehow I had never paid attention to, never cared or whatever until probably I last watched this. So, you know, maybe sometime in college Mm -hmm. or something, but I never really made the connection as a child that Eric kind of refused to be with Ariel because he was waiting for the girl with that voice. Yeah. The magic of this voice and how important the voice is Mm. really hadn't struck me until probably my last watching. And then obviously this one too. So Hmm. That was kind of nice to like dig a little bit more into the actual like logic of the plot rather Mm -hmm. than just being like play under the sea again. (laughs) Encore. (laughs) You bring up a good point that the logic of the plot is very sound, which I think contributes to how good a story and a movie it is. Mm -hmm. All of the characters motivations make a lot of sense. Yeah. Which I think is a real strength. This was a favorite for me growing up. Most of the princess movies were. My mom informed me that this was the very first VHS our family owned. What, like of any, of, not just Disney? Yeah. Whoa. I mean, actually, that kind of makes sense. Right. And something I'll get into, but that's cool. Yeah. Okay. A real favorite. Love the music. And I really enjoyed watching it again. <laughs> it's really funny. Like, the humor really landed for me. Yeah. Especially, like, on the second recent watching. Like, I watched it twice, you know, a week apart. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was still funny, like, even more funny the second time was like, this must mean it's, like, actually legitimately good when it's not just (laughs) funny because it's surprising. Mm, Yeah. I'm excited to talk about this because 
there's actually a lot of scholarship on The Little Mermaid. I'm sure you have a lot in terms of the history, but there's also a Mm -hmm. lot in the academic scholarship and film analysis. So uh, I think it's going to be a juicy conversation. Yeah, it's cool because I feel like things are a little more nuanced now than maybe they've been in the past. I think we brought this up maybe on the Oliver and Company episode as well, but like the gendered stuff and the racist stuff has been so obvious Mm -hmm. for so long and i feel like moving forward they're getting smarter and more tolerant and growing hopefully but that doesn't mean that there aren't still really complicated issues Mm -hmm. that are maybe a little more hidden and it's interesting to think about how much disney was responding to the culture versus creating the culture Mm. over time I mean you know with every film but I'm thinking about that especially as we're moving into the renaissance because the presentation of princesses especially is very different Mm -hmm. and so I am curious about how intentional that was on the part of the filmmakers or if that was just how they were genuinely thinking about women and women's roles yeah we're going to talk about so many princesses. <laughs> I know. I, it's going to be great to compare them all. Yeah. Will you give us some some Hans Christian Andersen knowledge, please? Yeah. I mean, way to spoil it. Um, Sorry, guys, if you didn't know, <laughs> he's the bi- he's the big fairy tale one. He's the it, big fairy tale so one. You know. He's right up there with the Brothers Grimm. And in terms of prominence for Disney with Charles Perrault as a source of inspo. Danish writer, lived from 1805 to 1875. The story that this film is based on is also called The Little Mermaid, and it was published in 1837 as part of Anderson's first collection of fairy tales, the title of which, when translated from Danish, is Tales Told for Children. Great. Straightforward. Very straightforward. (laughs) Just wanted to Note here that several other of Anderson's stories will inspire future Disney films, namely his stories The Emperor's New Clothes and The Snow Queen. So this is the first of several stories from this author that Disney's pulling from. I also wanted to share a quote about Anderson. This is from Encyclopedia Britannica that just gives a little bit more insight into his writing of this story. Quote, part of what makes some of the tales so compelling is Anderson's identification with the unfortunate and the outcast. A strong autobiographical element runs through his sadder tales. Throughout his life, he perceived himself as an outsider. And despite the international recognition he received, he never felt completely accepted. End quote. Hmm. Much of the scholarship when analyzing similarities and differences between the source material and the film point out this autobiographical element as being really particularly present in this story that Anderson may have identified with The Little Mermaid as feeling like he didn't quite belong in the world that he was in and really desperately wanted to be part of this other world. For him, that was really class-based, but feeling like even when he got to that other world, that human world, he was still an outsider to some extent. Interesting. It's kind of nice to see a 
male writer connecting with his female protagonist like <laughs> men and women can can feel the same ways and have some of the same desires and needs mm. it's just like they're not just props in stories <laughs> yes that's a really good point there are also some really interesting differences between the source material in the disney film yeah <laughs> most prominently well the ending but yeah second most prominently <laughs> is <laughs> the little mermaids she's not named ariel in the story the little mermaid's motivation for becoming human is not so she can find true love but because mermaids don't have eternal souls it's only humans mm -hmm. who have eternal souls and go to heaven so the little mermaid wants to go to heaven and that's why she becomes human and by the way the way that she gets into heaven is by marrying a man right right right, you know, right that's right. just sort of a step <laughs> along the way it's not necessarily love in and of itself that's motivating her mm -hmm. changes the like tones of both stories where like there's this moral aspect to the original mm -hmm. story of like she's making a lot of moral decisions mm -hmm. versus our disney little mermaid ariel is more stuck on this romance so tell us more about the background of the film yeah sure so one of the things that i found out early on that i didn't know is that there was actually a plan in the 1930s of walt disney's to do a package film of han christian anderson's fairy tales and it never came to fruition you know they did snow white and while they were doing that they were like hey more fairy tales mm. we can put all of these together but it never happened but i had no idea that like there's a little walt disney like touch to this film mm. even though if he literally had nothing to do with it mm -hmm. but on that same note there was a disney illustrator back in the 1930s named Kay Nielsen, and he worked on the Night on Bald Mountain sequence in Fantasia, mm. and he developed some story sketches for The Little Mermaid back then, and that artwork was in the Disney archives until the 1980s, mm. and the animators found it again when they started working on this film. So he's actually credited posthumously for visual development on the film. Oh, wow. That's really neat. But that's basically all that connects to the 1930s. There wasn't there wasn't a script. There wasn't anything else. So back in the 80s, late 80s, uh, as we mentioned in our previous episode, Ron Clements originally pitched the idea for The Little Mermaid mm -hmm. in the first gong show meeting with Katzenberg. And Katzenberg shot it down because they were already planning a sequel to Splash mm -hmm. and he didn't want didn't need double mermaids <laughs> he greenlit oliver instead but then apparently the very next day katzenberg reviewed some of the other pitches again and decided he actually liked the little mermaid idea mm. so they were allowed to start development on the first fairy tale in 30 years yeah wow it's been a long time since sleeping beauty mm -hmm. so ron clements and john musker who would be the film's eventual co-directors and co-writers. They expanded Clements' initial pitch into a 20-page script, but then the project was put on a back burner because the studio was focusing on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Oliver and Company. But then in 1987, Howard Ashman finished his work on Once Upon a Time in New York City for Oliver and Company, and he moved over to The Little Mermaid and like became this <laughs> super... I don't want to say overzealous, mm. just zealous. 
yeah. <laughs> I guess, part of the writing and development, like, really added a life to this that it had already, but, like, the enthusiasm that he had mm-hmm. for it was just really infectious. So Ashman and Alan Menken had previously written the very successful off-Broadway stage musical Little Shop of Horrors. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've heard of it. (laughs) Pretty good. But Ashman was reeling from the failure of his latest Broadway show, Smile, Mm -hmm. when he came to work for Disney. So he was switching gears, needing, needing new inspiration. Ashman was actually the one who convinced the crew to change the crab character, who was originally an English butler type named Clarence (laughs) (laughs) to a Trinidadian crab. And a lot of people will say like, isn't he Jamaican? Like you hear the word Jamaican thrown out a lot, but Samuel E. Wright, who voiced the character will tell you that he can't do a Jamaican accent, but he can do a Trinidadian accent. (laughs) So the crab has to be from Trinidad. (laughs) So there you go, guys. He's not Jamaican. He's from Trinidad. Okay. But Ashman, did have a love for calypso music Mm. so like that was a genuine influence Mm -hmm. and he was just looking for the right person to capture the voice for that character yeah apparently he pitched a lot of things as like here's an idea what if we did this and like suddenly he starts singing the whole song that he had already (laughs) written like reciting dialogue he'd already completely completed and was like you know like just a thought (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then it was so incredible. How could people say no? Exactly. They were like, you know what, Howard? I mean, that's a great idea. <laughs> like, considering the work's already done. Yeah. <laughs> but like he was a genius mm-hmm. with this, the like songs and the dialogue. A lot of that comes down to Howard Ashman. So he also seemed to really understand the possibilities with the animation Mm. the song under the sea for example the way that all of the animals are like playing themselves and interacting with the environment to create the music the fact that he came from broadway Mm -hmm. like that's such a different style of performance and presentation and so he really embraced like it's animation we can do whatever we want we can tell this story in a totally different way yeah he really was brilliant One of the other things he convinced the directors and even Katzenberg of was kind of what you were just saying, that the film in total should operate more like a Broadway musical, Mm. particularly that the songs should move the plot forward or the character development forward. Like they don't stop the movie for like a dance break or something like it shouldn't stop the action. The songs need to be integral to the plot so that the story can't function without them. And I think with the exception of the chef scene, I think that is true. (laughs) Yeah. This film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That song isn't completely necessary, I think, but all the other ones definitely doing good work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ashman got Disney to bring Alan Menken on board. They composed all the songs. Alan Menken also composed the score. And the songs were developed really fluidly alongside the script because, again, they were supposed to be so integral to the storytelling. So Ashman, in particular, ended up sharing ideas with like all different departments. And the two of them became so obsessed, again, <laughs> with this film that they ended up as co-producers mm. as well. So, like, super involved throughout the whole project. On a character side, Glenn Keane was originally asked to lead on Ursula Mm. 
because he had a history with like large powerful figures he did the bear in the fox and the hound mm-hmm. he did professor radigan mm-hmm. but he requested to work on ariel mm-hmm. he just felt really drawn to her and he felt like he knew he could capture her spirit so he ended up as co-lead animator on her with mark hen duncan major banks worked on sebastian andreas deha worked on king triton and ruben aquino worked on ursula part of your world and its accompanying animated sequence that Keen spent like a ridiculous amount of time on was almost cut entirely from the film. Oh, can you imagine? Like, <laughs> oh, it would be so horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently they screened an early version of the film for a group of kids and the part of your world sequence was only in black and white sketches mm. at that point. So like not the most engaging imagery mm-hmm. on the screen. The story goes that one of the kids dropped their popcorn and it caused a a bit of a disturbance. Uh. (laughs) Kids got squirmy and a little bit rowdy. And obviously it reflected on that scene for at least Jeffrey Katzenberg. Mm. And he insisted that they cut it. And everyone on the film was so mortified, Mm -hmm. like refused. Obviously it was integral to the story. Mm -hmm. It makes the audience sympathize and root for her. Mm -hmm. Ashman would point out that it's her I want song Mm -hmm. and like Broadway speak that like second or third song that makes you understand what the character wants. Yep. Clements and Musker referenced that a similar situation had happened with somewhere over the rainbow Mm. in the wizard of Oz and Katzenberg knew that story and he liked that song. Mm. And so they were like trying to play on his sympathies. Apparently that didn't work either. Wow. So finally like Glenn Keane marches into his office and just like slams into him and is like because Ariel was his character right. like he felt it was so important and eventually he managed to get Katzenberg to allow them to at least fully animate the scene and see how it tested mm. with kids then mm-hmm. and of course it did super well yeah. and now that song basically paved the way for every animated character anthem in the Disney Renaissance absolutely yeah <laughs> Like, it would be such a loss. And it's such an important theme. Mm. Like, the music of it comes up to, like, move right. Ariel's journey along. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, losing the light motif, too. Be terrible. <laughs> so, moving away from Ariel, we'll talk about Ursula, mm-hmm. who I love so much. Mm-hmm. Her design was based on the drag queen Divine, mm-hmm. which totally tracks if you look up pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and Clements and Musker originally wanted arthur of golden girls fame to voice oh, her <laughs> huh. but arthur turned that part down yeah and then elaine stritch was actually cast in the beginning and like was working on the film but she and howard ashman didn't get along oh. so she was let go and then they cast pat carroll mm-hmm. who is the official ursula that we all love and i found a great quote where she described the role as quote part shakespearean actress with all the flair, flamboyance, and theatricality, and part used car salesman with a touch of con artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, so moving on to more of the technical stuff. 80% of the film ended up needing special effects animation of some kind. Wow. 
because it's almost all underwater. Right. <laughs> this is the most special effects animation since Fantasia. Mm. And apparently over a million bubbles were drawn for this film oh by the special goodness. effects department. And it was so much work that they actually outsourced it to Pacific Rim Productions in China. Oh my gosh. Wow. So when you say special effects animation, what does that mean? That's different from the CGI animation, though that's also present in this film. Yeah, so I think, you know, special effects we think of now as, like, what the computer can add to a scene mm -hmm. when, like, they can't shoot on location or weird animals that don't actually exist or something like that. Mm -hmm. But back then it was just kind of added stuff to make it look more realistic mm. or achieve an effect. So a lot of it is lighting. Mm. That's a huge piece where, like, brightening certain areas, putting layers on top of the cells to make them look shimmery or whatever underwater mm. and then just literally like adding six little bubbles when ariel spins around really fast like mm. that's a special effect okay. but it's still mostly hand-drawn mm -hmm. or like painted effects and stuff like that cool lighting as i said was another really tricky one underwater because there's like the brightly lit surface water versus the dimly lit wrecked ship or the like artificial lighting of triton's palace so there was a lot of people working on making sure the lighting was consistent and also achieves the right mood mm -hmm. from scene to scene mm. they went apparently to aquariums <laughs> to like study underwater lighting and so while most of this was done by hand there was a little bit of computer animation like the opening shots on the ship mm -hmm. on the ocean that's computer animated and again it's not necessarily computer generated mm. we're still using the like line plotting stuff here okay not moving to anything quite more sophisticated just yet but also like when ariel runs down the stairs mm -hmm. towards the end of the movie and the stairs like it goes from like 20 stairs to like 50 yep. <laughs> <laughs> but that was computer animated as well mm -hmm. more importantly the little mermaid was the final disney major feature film to use traditional hand-painted cells for animation whoa this is it oh my gosh okay technically ducktales the movie also <laughs> uses hand-painted cells okay but that was not theatrically released mm. so this is also the final time they used the xerography process from 101 dalmatians mm. so leaving a lot of these things behind to finish up all of that special effects work and all of that animation Disney opened a new small feature animation facility in then MGM Studios mm. in Disney World mm -hmm. that helps to ink and paint the cells for the film. And that is still there, but has been changed over. But like animators still work in that building, like working on the films, which is cool. You can like look at them through the windows. Yeah, it's neat. it is neat. <laughs> They're like little animators in a zoo. Right. <laughs> Draw for me. <laughs> so all of this process would officially be replaced by the computer animation production system or caps mm -hmm. that Pixar developed for Disney's next film, the rescuers down under there is one caps prototype shot in this film. And that's when the ship is sailing away under the rainbow mm. at the end. So that's kind of part of why it's so vibrant is this new computer painted scene. Wow. The Little Mermaid premiered on November 17th, 1989, and had a final budget of $40 million, which was almost as much as The Black Cauldron. Wow. Expansive. 
movie's got to do well. Mm-hmm. Early on in development, Katzenberg had apparently warned the crew to like not expect the film to make as much money as Oliver and Company because it was a quote girls film. <laughs> and just like never girls films don't make as much money as boys films Mm, mm -hmm. never impossible (laughs) but then as they neared completion and they started getting initial positive responses he changed his tune merchandising had already also started to be released and was doing well in anticipation of the film never mind how it exploded after the film came out. What? Women and girls have purchasing power? Are you kidding? Right? They like toys? (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Yeah. But after those things, Katzenberg thought this could be the first, quote, blockbuster film, Hmm. expecting it could earn over $100 million in its initial run. It came awfully close Mm. at $84.4 million in North America. Wow. That was 60% more than Oliver and Company had made, and it was the highest grossing fully animated film yet. Mm -hmm. So really knocked it out of the park. (laughs) Reception-wise, I mean, obviously, the everyday people loved it, gave it all the the things. But talking about the criticism, Roger Ebert loved the film, thought it deserved to stand with the original Disney films and praised Ariel as, quote, a fully realized female character who thinks and acts independently, even rebelliously, instead of hanging passively while the fates decide her destiny. Mm. So he liked that. Mm -hmm. I'm glad. Yeah. He also called Ursula, quote, their most satisfying villainess since the witch in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs which I have more of a problem with. (laughs) Yeah, we feel pretty strongly about the villains. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Lady Tremaine is right there. She's right there. Lady Tremaine, Cruella de Vil, Maleficent, arguably all better than the Evil Queen, but whatever. Right? Like, I agree that I think Ursula is the most satisfying villain yet, Mm -hmm. but... The next one down is not the evil queen. <laughs> it's Snow White. Right, right. Gene Siskel also praised the film and Ursula, but in contrast thought, quote, the story won't win any prizes from the women's liberation movement. Mm. So a little bit of friction there. Yeah. Janet Maslin of the New York Times called it a, quote, marvel of skillful animation, witty songwriting and smart planning designed to delight filmgoers of every conceivable stripe, which I think is also a big piece of this film that like it really does appeal to everyone who watched it. I think adults can get a lot out of it and mm. kids like me who didn't realize that how important the voice was when they were little, like it doesn't matter. You got under the sea. It's great. Well, there <laughs> is an arguably problematic lack of representation for people of color in this film so oh yeah i'd be curious how that viewing demographic (laughs) felt uh the only black character is a crab but (laughs) yeah otherwise yeah every conceivable stripe of white people of any age yeah (laughs) this is what that quote should have been i suppose One interesting bit from her review that I really liked was that she praised the film's modernity. Mm. She wrote, quote, the color palette is less primary, Mm. leaning towards hues that make the film look vibrant and new without becoming garish. The characters, though they retain their fundamental innocence, are more savvy than those found in traditional Disney fare. 
The heroine, a mermaid named Ariel, is even capable of wit, which is more than could ever be said of Snow White or Sleeping Beauty <laughs> or Cinderella. Mm, yeah. The film won a number of accolades. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, mm. the first fully animated film to be nominated for anything since The Rescuers. Oh, wow. And it won Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Under the Sea. Kiss the Girl was also nominated mm. for Best Original Song. So they had two shots, and apparently Samuel E. Wright was really excited because he was like, I'm going to win either way. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, his performance is such a virtuoso one in this. Yeah, for sure. It also won the exact same awards at the Golden Globes. The soundtrack won the Grammy Award for Best Album for Children, mm. and Under the Sea won Best Song Britain specifically for a motion picture or television. Okay. And the soundtrack was certified double platinum in 1990 for shipping 2 million copies of the album, which was completely unheard wow. of for a film. I also think it's worth noting that Disney released The Little Mermaid on VHS on May 18th, 1990, just six months after the release of the film. Mm -hmm. Until now, films that were chosen even to be released on home video came out seven years after they had first premiered mm -hmm. in the hopes of like capturing the next generation of kids. Mm -hmm. So they did this experiment with The Little Mermaid and it became 1990's top selling title on home video. Wow. And so Disney started releasing them on home video much sooner, which made Disney more intimately part of households mm. and more shareable than it had been, which I think is probably a big piece of the success of the Renaissance mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Lastly, I think Leonard Maltin summed things up pretty neatly in the documentary Treasures Untold. He said, quote, the Black Cauldron served its purpose. There was good work done on Oliver and the Great Mouse Detective, but when The Little Mermaid came along, it was the right film at the right time, and it really did turn everything around. Mm. And then we're off. We are off and running into the Renaissance. And as you alluded to earlier, I think our discussion of themes will be more nuanced from here on out. Yeah, for sure. It's not going to hit us in the face quite as clearly as it has in the past. Mm -hmm. Even in the reviews you mentioned, there were diverting opinions about how much the film upholds feminist values. So let's talk about feminism as our first theme. Davis, in their book, Good Girls and Wicked Witches from 2007, summarizes this comparison of Renaissance princesses in general to the earlier princesses and says that Quote, unlike the earlier films in which the heroine's honor was depicted and proven simply through her goodness and acquiescence, the heroines of the Renaissance show their integrity through their action rather than their inaction, end quote. Davis also highlights the independence, strength of will, determination to engineer their own fates, and insistence on being true to themselves. Yeah. While doing my history research, I was surprised more didn't come up of like how intentional this kind of attitude change was. And I mean, it's been, again, 30 years since Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily like they'd be like, let's do this different than the last thing we made. Right. Like they've been through, you know, three or four groups of animators even mm -hmm. by now. But so Glenn Keane was really the only one I heard like talking about like how 
important and necessary Ariel was and really wanting to get her right. But I didn't hear much from the crew during the time of creation about like, we wanted to capture the modern girl or something, you know, it was all Mm -hmm. retrospective interviews of like, now we had a spunky heroine, but like, I don't know how much they were really thinking about that or if, you know, maybe it was just like Howard Ashman bringing in that Broadway viewpoint Mm -hmm. of like, we need a character who really has something to fight for and we want the audience to connect with her. Yeah, Ariel's autonomy for me is something that really shines through as very positive in terms of being a role model for young girls and women. She literally saves Eric's life. Yeah. As opposed to the other way around. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, he does get his his saving scene at the end where she's kind of a little useless, Mm -hmm. but she's also just gone through like the transformation. She's been through a lot. It's okay. She did her saving earlier on and she orchestrated this whole attack on Ursula Mm -hmm. at the end as well. So yeah, it's cool to see her get both sides of the coin. Yes, absolutely. I do think it's worth re-emphasizing that yes, she falls in love with Eric and Eric's love is her primary motivation for becoming human. But her love for Eric is really just like one more reason on top of all of these reasons she already had for wanting to become human. She's already been craving the independence that she thinks might come from the human world. She sings about that in part of your world. She describes them as bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. And the other line, like, I bet on land they don't reprimand their daughters Mm -hmm. and like obviously that's not true that's tongue-in-cheek but you know her beliefs that this world up there will be so much freer for her even as a woman Mm -hmm. like it is gendered when she sings these things too and there aren't that many women in powerful positive situations under the sea Mm -hmm. like it's you know Triton and Sebastian and then the sisters Mm -hmm. so I wonder if she thinks women have more power on land too Mm -hmm. that would be kind of cool. That reminds me of another difference between the film and the original story. In the story, Ariel has a grandmother who is very powerful, and it's actually her grandmother who tells her about the human world. Oh, I like that. Interesting that they cut. I mean, like, you can't, you gotta cut characters. Like, I understand for storytelling purposes. Right. But I don't know, that feels kind of like Moana, where, like, there's that beautiful intergenerational relationship that she has with her grandmother, and we weren't allowed to have that here yeah so another thing that came up in the scholarship is that ariel's pursuit of autonomy is often limited it comes at a cost Mm. and i read that as scholars arguing for why this film is perhaps less feminist because it does put bounds on ariel's autonomy but i would actually interpret Hmm. it differently i would say that in recognizing the very real barriers that do exist to women's autonomy and reflecting that through the film, it's actually commenting on on that Mm. and criticizing the barriers that exist to women's autonomy rather than reinforcing them. That was another reason why I would argue that this could be interpreted as a feminist film in some ways. There's another book from Mouse to Mermaid, edited by Bell and colleagues, that mentions this specifically. Bell writes, quote, Autonomy and independence, as many feminists have recognized, is never easy. The cost for participating in the white male system can be quite dear. 
About to enter the real world, Ariel faces the pain of conforming to impossible ideals as she physically mutilates her own body by exchanging her fins for the mobility of human legs. Mm. Like so many women who enter the workforce or any other male sphere, Ariel wrestles with the double-binding cultural expectations of choosing between either voice or access, but never both. Yes, to that last line. (laughs) Right? So in addition to autonomy and the ways that she doesn't, does not have it, like fighting for that freedom is her main role. Mm -hmm. And I think allowing Ariel also to be flawed and to go about that Mm. the wrong way, quote unquote, is like also a big piece of making her a real a real girl (laughs) and making her more interesting making her allowed to be flawed she doesn't have to be the perfect princess Mm. so like you know early on she forgets about this extremely important concert Mm -hmm. she's supposed to be at and then of course that moment where she's like oh my father's going to kill me Mm -hmm. like we all feel that (laughs) like we've all had that moment very relatable yeah it makes her actually feel like she's 16 years old Mm -hmm. and give her the layers that I think make it more feminist in letting her be a real person. She doesn't have to be perfect to be a feminist. Right. (laughs) Also, I just think it's cool that she actually gets to know Eric a little (laughs) bit. Yes. (laughs) And can we talk about Eric? Because he is a catch compared to the previous princes. He literally (laughs) jumps onto a burning ship to save his dog. Yeah. Who does not want (laughs) that level of pet devotion in their partner? Yeah. Never mind that he's also already saved a couple other people, but I do agree the dog is the the, the part that wins it all over. Yes. He's a a musician. That's kind of hot. You know, he's got a lot going for him. Yeah. I mean, he's not the brightest Maybe just this like obsession over a voice and not letting anything else step in the way of this person he's decided he loves Mm. when he has like very little other evidence about them. So you're not into like loyalty and commitment. I'm not into hallucinations on the beach (laughs) that you pursue for the rest of your life. (laughs) But I mean, he's pretty cute. He does not ever touch her in a non-consensual way i think in the way that we've had with some of the other princes who restrain their loves Uh he also seems to genuinely enjoy her personality yeah they like they actually get to know each other Mm -hmm. and he's like he's charmed by her in the same way that she was and i like that we get to see her seeing him on the ship in the beginning Mm -hmm. of like she gets a piece of his personality when he sees the statue of him and they both make like a face at it. Yes. You're like, oh, like they think about things a similar way. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this is not a lot, y'all. It's like three days <laughs> they get to like fall in love, but that's more than we've seen mm-hmm. in any prior film. They actually get along and could be a nice couple. They're not just thrust together because they danced one time or a guy climbed over a wall and. <laughs> tried to talk to you while you made wishes in a wishing well. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There are a couple issues of consent here, but it doesn't stem from Eric's problematic behavior. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out to me is in the Academy Award nominated song, Kiss the Girl, some of the lyrics are... <laughs> 
it don't take a word, not a single word. Go on and kiss the girl. Mm-hmm. It's possible she wants you to. There's one way to ask her. Mm-hmm. So the suggestion here is that you don't actually obtain verbal consent, <laughs> but you just like go for it. And then you find out whether she's into it or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's one way to ask her and it's not by asking her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kiss the girl is makes me uncomfortable for sure. Every time. Mm -hmm. And yet it gets super stuck in my head. I think it's a beautiful song. It's also really funny with all the like scuttle Mm -hmm. bits in it, (laughs) but like essentially it's like an old man trying to pimp out a 17 year old girl. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not, not great. Not great. (laughs) (laughs) We took your voice away and put you in a potentially sexual situation and then you're not allowed to give consent. Like we've taken the ability to consent away from you. Then again, she ha- she can nod. She can shake her head. Mm-hmm. She can clearly sign her name. So why can't she write notes mm-hmm. <laughs> on a piece of paper? She could have said everything if she just had a piece of paper. It does seem like there would be other ways to communicate other than, as Ursula suggests, body language. Body language. <laughs> yeah. The other issue of consent that I never remembered until my recent watchings ariel and eric have just had a lovely day together she wakes up the next morning and scuttle comes in and congratulates her because she's getting married but it's not actually ariel it's actually ursula in disguise and that's the wedding that scuttle's heard about that he's mistakenly thinking involves ariel and ariel is like briefly surprised and then just overjoyed (laughs) Like, no one talked to me about this, but apparently it's my wedding day. And that is great. It would probably be good to ask the guy that you're marrying if if he actually wants to marry you and have that conversation. Proposing is good. Yeah, and like, I would like to know that I'm getting married more than 12 hours in advance. And like, ideally, before anyone else has started planning the wedding for me, you know, I kind of want to be aware of that situation. Yeah. Naturally, this flows into a discussion of the role that men do play in Ariel's life. Mm-hmm. She is super pumped to get married to Eric, and lucky for her, they end up getting married. But the moment when <laughs> King Triton like hugs Ariel goodbye, and then he and Eric like nod at each other. <laughs> like congratulations she's yours now yeah that's all you guys need to do you don't want to like get to know each other or anything no we're just we'll just exchange this woman Mm -hmm. and be on our way good well and she needed her father's permission to marry eric right she needed his help but also i think implicit in that is his permission Mm -hmm. the decision is not entirely up to her yeah she's 16 so she does need an adult's consent to marry, probably. Legally speaking. I want to talk about Ariel's voice, but specifically relating to the scene you just mentioned, mm-hmm. I feel like I really want to talk about the ending and basically the like commentary that Ursula gives on human mm-hmm. men. Were so that she has a whole verse in Poor Unfortunate Souls where she mm. says like <laughs> 
the men up there don't like a lot of blabber <laughs> like the whole yeah. this whole verse is about how like human men don't want you to speak to them up on land it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word mm-hmm I feel like the ending of the movie interacts really interestingly with this verse Mm. because after Ariel becomes human again, the only words she speaks is a whispered, I love you, daddy, to Triton when she gives him that hug goodbye. Mm. And like, I kind of got this vibe of like, you know, Ariel's super naive. Maybe she took Ursula's words to heart and like, doesn't want to talk too much Mm. and like is keeping her voice really quiet we never see her actually speak to eric once she's changed into a human they just kiss and wave and stuff (laughs) i thought that was really interesting because it's ursula calling out human men making this commentary on them of like they don't want women to speak but then has ariel actually internalized Mm. that but arguably the film then disproves that because eric is actually quite interested and invested in ariel's voice that's true the thing that he cares the most about in a this woman he's fallen in love with is her voice yeah another theme that i'm noticing across disney films especially films that have both a princess and a female villain is this commentary on what pursuits or motivations are acceptable for women Mm. All of our princesses have been motivated to some degree by love. Mm-hmm. Also freedom, especially in Ariel's case and, and arguably in Cinderella's case as well. But what the female villains want in general, and certainly what Ursula wants, is power. Mm-hmm. If we're reading into that, it's that, okay, it's great. Women want to be free. They want to be in love. Like, that's awesome. Uh, but, 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 ooh, you can't like actually be in control of too much. You can maybe have control over yourself and your own life and that's fine, but you don't get control over anything else, anything larger than a domestic sphere. Yeah. When you want to overthrow the patriarchy in the form of Triton's undersea palace, mm-hmm. now you're the villain. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned... I think it was Siskel who commented on feminists potentially having problems with this film. Yeah. And we've talked about some of the reasons why, but I am guessing that another reason is the way that Ariel is arguably objectified and or sexualized with her depiction. I mean, she is wearing a bikini for most of the movie. Yeah, I mean, she is... The feminine ideal, I suppose, if we're going with that frame. Like, she looks just like all the other princesses in body type. They made the choice to make her a redhead because they wanted it to stand out against the blue Mm -hmm. of the ocean. But she was originally going to be a blonde. Mm. So just falling back into those, like, white, blonde, blue-eyed feminine ideals that we have seen a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Once again, we see those beauty standards reinforced with two separate juxtapositions that happen here. Ariel and Ursula are opposed to one another. And of course, they're quite different, especially in terms of body size. But then Ursula is also compared with herself in human form. Mm, Vanessa, yeah. But I think both of those comparisons like tell us 
very clearly that something about Ursula is ugly, unattractive. And if we kind of break down the components of Ursula's appearance, I mean, one of the major ones is going to be the size and shape of her body. Yeah, when the animators were doing all their different test sketches of what Ursula was going to look like, they had so many different ones and she was fat and she was skinny and she had like a a shark tail Mm. or was also a mermaid. But then they thought the squid bottom was like the most interesting to animate. Mm. But also they felt that she should be like past her prime, you know, Mm. an old diva kind of thing and her size was certainly part of that that like it's implied that she is beyond her best days also because she is fat yeah and she maybe she was not always and if you know taking the step back of like of course the fat character is the evil one or the butt of the joke that's what we always see Mm -hmm. and even if ursula is a fantastic character here Mm -hmm. they've still made those choices and associated evilness with fatness once again the point you made about her being past her prime is a good one and there was an article written shortly after the film came out written in 1991 by trites quote One especially memorable sequence involves a zoom in on Ursula's cleavage so that her ponderous bosom occupies the entire screen. (laughs) Ursula's breasts seem suffocating rather than nurturing, which is a perversion of the biological function of breasts. (laughs) Disney portrays the mature female body as ominously menacing. End quote. There's sometimes when I just like hear people say things and like, even if I don't completely agree or whatever, just like making that point of like her boobs will suffocate you instead of providing life is like so interesting. I know. Academics are wild. They're a wild bunch. <laughs> right. They have got some ideas. <laughs> yes. Ugh. During the kiss the girl scene, Flotsam and Jetsam are the ones who like disturb the boat and flip them over mm-hmm. because they were like about to kiss to like make sure that that doesn't happen because Ursula obviously isn't playing fair. And she's watching this scene from home and she yells that little tramp about mm-hmm. Ariel placing them and this dichotomy women against women in a romantic and sexual way of like putting limits on each other judging each other for how they use their bodies what they pursue sexually the use of the word tramp was so surprising to me well it's slut shaming yeah 100 percent. yeah you mentioned that ursula was inspired by divine do you want to talk more about that yeah for maybe the first time we're getting a little bit of like queer representation in mm-hmm. this film and it's very slight like i don't have a ton to say but howard ashman was gay mm-hmm. and they're basing a character on a drag queen and like i don't think you could have brought that concept to disney i don't know like i maybe you couldn't have even i don't know how they did it now even like it just yeah. felt fairly revolutionary and really stepping outside of the comfort zone we've seen disney occupy Mm -hmm. but maybe the theatricality that howard ashman brought the broadway presence he was doing so well and giving so much enthusiasm that Mm -hmm. incorporating divine as at least inspiration just fit right in with everything Mm -hmm. else and really divine is is the perfect inspiration for ursula but 
I was kind of amazed when I learned that, that like Disney let that happen or let that be part of their own history in the documentaries. Like they can say it was based on whoever they wanted, but mm-hmm. they were proud of this association. So, right. It's cool. It is cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is maybe a little bit of queer representation, but as I mentioned earlier, almost no representation for people of color. And I think the scholarship we discussed with Oliver and company is actually relevant here. Specifically, Barnd wrote about how when certain animal characters are depicted in a racialized way, that tells us that other animal characters that don't have those qualities are to be read as white, therefore Mm -hmm. reinforcing white as the norm. So we can assume that Sebastian is black because of the Trinidadian accent and also I think because of the caricature of his large lip and teeth, I think is part of that as well. And so then the implication is that all the other animals are white and all the people are definitely white. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually like, this is a low bar, but a little (laughs) pleasantly surprised at the under the sea scene where Mm. like I was waiting for the racial stereotype of some kind to pop up. Mm. There's like kind of a Carmen Miranda fish at Mm. one point, a Duke Ellington fish too mm-hmm. yes but i was pleasantly surprised to not see more physical characteristics to like somehow distinguish races between these fish to make them like they're the calypso fish it's the caribbean fish in some way like making mm. them more black mm-hmm. like afro-caribbean vibes so it again it is a very low bar but i didn't feel among the animals that same racism that we've seen in the past right well and I think that begs the question like is it (laughs) neither of these options are great but if you had to choose would you rather have diverse representations even if those representations are stereotypical to the point of being offensive or would you rather have no representation whatsoever I plead the fifth (laughs) yeah i know right and so that's kind of like those are the two options we've seen disney present to us thus far exactly yeah like they don't see another option it seems like yet and i mean i always believe in actually portraying things as they are so yes the fish should not take on the racial characteristics of whatever people of whatever region they're supposed to be from Mm mm-hmm but like, yeah, it would have been nice to see some characters of color in the human or humanoid figures as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, related to that, I found a really interesting essay by Murphy. And this is actually in that same edited volume from Mouse to Mermaid. Murphy talks about this same scene under the sea. And so I'm going to read you a quote and it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. Quote, Ariel is attracted to the surface world by the consumer goods of early capitalist production. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know, right? It gets better. She okay. remarks <laughs> She remarks that I don't see how a world that makes such wonderful things can be bad. But doesn't her world make things? 
According to the song Under the Sea, apparently not, since Sebastian makes it quite explicit that this Caribbean equivalent, underdeveloped aquatic state, does not engage in significant labor. Mer people just sing and dance while humans work. This racist and colonialist perspective reinforces the human-non-human and the culture-nature dichotomies by associating the Mer people and by implication Caribbean and other equatorial peoples, with a closer-to-nature, live-off-the-land, indigenous lifestyle inferior to the industrial lifestyle, end quote. (laughs) Oh, my God. Your face right now. (laughs) Erin has, like, both of her hands, like, up against her face in, like, a Home Alone pose. This is another one of those times where, like, you get that person making that connection that's kind of like a light bulb. Yes. And then, like, mm, the light bulb, like, flickers <laughs> a little bit. Like, are you reading a little too much into it? Maybe just Maybe. a little bit much? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting take. And I think the point about industrial versus indigenous cultures, I, I mean, I hmm. think that's a fair description of how these two groups are portrayed in the film yeah i like that i like knowing all the weird things people think and then i can pick whatever i want but at least like i just have all the knowledge exactly i appreciate you sharing it anyway (laughs) oh yeah of course and i think again there's a ton of scholarship on this movie and so it was really fun to dig into it can we talk briefly about classism yes Absolutely. So I just have one short point here, but it it really stuck out to me when I was watching the film. That scene where the aide, I don't remember the character's name. Grimsby. Grimsby, thank you. Who's kind of looking out for Eric when Eric is so insistent on finding the girl with the voice that he heard. Mm -hmm. Grimsby says like, don't keep looking for something that might not even exist when you have this wonderful thing right in front of you talking Mm -hmm. about Ariel. And like, I thought it was kind of cool that Grimsby and by extension, maybe the kingdom, the palace, whatever (laughs) is okay with Eric marrying random shipwreck girl. (laughs) She came out of nowhere. She doesn't speak. They have no idea who she is. She didn't have proper clothes when she showed up, Mm, but she is very beautiful. She's so pretty though. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't talk too much. She's pretty. So she'd probably make good babies, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's not as good. But I did like that Grimsby didn't have a problem with her, quote unquote, being poor. It's worth commenting on the fact that Ariel is mute for a lot of this movie. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, this is a depiction of someone with a disability. However, they are very firmly stating that this disability is in fact a disability. It's a very negative thing. It's going to hold her back from Mm. achieving her goals. So it's construed in an entirely negative light. Yeah, just worth mentioning that like disability kind of sort of popping up again. But as a plot device, not as like a meaningful aspect of character development. Exactly. Uh, And of course, you know, that is a carryover from the source material as well and i will say that in the source material the prince does not treat the little mermaid very well because she is unable to speak this is certainly an improved (laughs) 
uh, representation of someone with muteness, but yeah. Okay. Moving in the right direction. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Better than they were doing in the 1800s. So that's good. (laughs) I think it might be time. Is it time for (gasps) some Aaron's Extra? Aaron's Extras. Cool. Again, going to get the controversy out of the way first. (laughs) Excellent. As probably anyone who was on the internet in the early 2000s knew. (laughs) Um, I was hoping you were going to talk about this. (laughs) People love to find the hidden messages in Disney movies. Mm -hmm. This is one of the first films that people like to talk about with like hidden sexual stuff. There are two different allegations about the Little Mermaid in different points. One of the most well-known is that people allege that the clergyman presiding over the wedding between Eric and Ursula disguised as Vanessa has an erection. If you change the angle or like literally look at the next scene, it's his knee. Mm -hmm. The other one is that on the original VHS tape cover, one of the spires of the castle it's supposed to look like a penis it does look like a penis it does mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not intentional it's just someone drew it that way and wasn't really thinking about it apparently they had farmed out the art for the cover and it was like super rushed so they blame it on like a you know all-nighter cover artwork job yeah okay moving on no more controversies Jim Carrey auditioned for the role of Eric and clearly did not get it. Wow. But this was really early, basically before his career. So he wasn't a big name yet. Mm. They passed on him and it wasn't like they were passing on Jim Carrey, who he would become. Right. But he soon after got some of his first big breaks. So Mm. comes up in Disney history. Ariel's body type and personality were based on on Alyssa Milano, who was then starring in Who's the Boss? (laughs) Huh. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And the effect of her hair underwater, the way it moves, which I think is so cool. It is. Was based on footage of Sally Ride when she was in space. Whoa. Very cool. Neat. Animator Glenn Keane has aphantasia, which is a recently identified variation of human experience affecting 2 to 5% of the population in which a person is unable to generate mental imagery. Whoa. Glenn Keane can't picture anything in his head. He didn't come up with an idea for Ariel in his head and then put it down on the paper. He had to kind of make her come to life as he went. My last Aaron's extra is a little bit sad. Howard Ashman was diagnosed with AIDS midway through production and he didn't tell anyone. Mm. He just focused all his energy on the film, on storyboarding, on design, like threw himself Mm. into it. If Howard Ashman had survived longer than he had, we would maybe talk about this a little differently and maybe even the the Disney Renaissance would be different. Mm. But Howard Ashman died in 1991 during Beauty and the Beast And I've already cried a little bit about him Mm. and his work and how wonderful Mm -hmm. and important this story was to him. And to know that he only gets two more years doing this is very sad, but I'm really glad I know who he was now and how important he was Mm. to this film. And And to Disney in general. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my Aaron's extras. Hmm. Thank you. 
What grade would you give Little Mermaid? This it's an A plus. That like yeah. the people loved it. They gave it all the money. The critics loved it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's an A plus for sure. What do you think for modern audiences? I don't know. Oh, my instinct <laughs> is A. Okay. And I feel conflicted about that because, you know, we just spent a lot of time talking about problematic aspects of the film. However, if I'm judging it in comparison to all the other films we've seen thus far, I mean, it's one of the strongest. Yeah, it really is. I think it has a lot to offer, not just in terms of storytelling and music, but in terms of meaningful characters, especially in Ariel and Ursula. Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. fair. It is it is a very good movie. It stood up a whole lot better than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. I think Kiss the Girl is its biggest flaw, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a recommendation for us? I do. It's a pretty obvious one, and it's something that I think you've mentioned in past episodes in discussing Disney film history. But if you haven't yet watched the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, this is the perfect opportunity. It tells the story of the Disney Renaissance in terms of everything that was happening behind the scenes. And it does showcase the story of Howard Ashman in a really nice way. So uh, check it out. Yeah, seconded. I am co-watching that with all of our movies as we go, and it's been really helpful. A little skewed sometimes. Mm -hmm. I've found some other making of things a little bit more in-depth, but it's been very informative. It also just helps to put faces to all the names that we've been hearing. I think a lot of us recognize Michael Eisner on site, but like, I don't think I could have described Katzenberg or like Pete Schneider Mm. that was helpful to know what he looks like and how he fits into the Disney structure it kind of clarified all that to me I have a little bit of a recommendation as well oh wonderful (laughs) this will probably be old news by the time this episode comes out but you'll probably still be able to find it there is a new series of shorts called Olaf Presents on Disney Plus oh I think it's like eight episodes maybe that are five minutes each of Olaf doing the like Disney Renaissance (laughs) films in like short films. And the first one is the little mermaid and it's very silly to see Olaf like play all the characters and sing like a a snippet of each song and Olaf, the snowman from frozen. Frozen. Yes. Yep. (laughs) So Josh, that sounds incredible. A Sebastian impression. <laughs> All that. Amazing. I will be watching that immediately. Perfect. Thank you for the recommendation. You're welcome. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming along for the ride. The Renaissance continues next time with The Rescuers Down Under. Woo! This is the one I actually remembered <laughs> from when I was a kid. <laughs> this is the one that I'm like, We have to get through this in order to get to Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) Yeah, that's very fair. There's got to be one more little road bump before we can like hit all of our favorites. It's true. But I am actually excited to watch it because it's been a long time. And I'm guessing there is more to appreciate in it than 
I remember. Yeah, I don't know anything about the Caps system yet and how they animated this film. So I am I'm really excited to learn all of that. If you want to reach out, you can email us at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at DeconDisney and rate, review, subscribe literally anywhere. But on Apple Podcast helps us the most. Thanks. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Mm-hmm.